0: Just want to ask you a question: um, Do you guys believe in the gospel? I hope you do. I hope you say uh, you do believe in the gospel. Then what is the gospel? How do you explain the gospel? How would you describe? What would you say to someone who is earnestly seeking? What the gospel is? What would you say to them? The title of my message today is the Gospel and Resurrection. You know, after instructing the Corinthians concerning the spiritual gifts in the preceding chapters, and they ta- you know, Paul talked about the primary purpose of the spiritual gifts, which is to edify and to build up the church, and he put you know, emphasis on decency and orderliness because God is a God of order and peace. And now Paul turns his attention to the issue of the resurrection of the Christian body. Christian's body. And this is not an issue that the Corinthians really uh, write about, but Paul heard that some were saying that there was no resurrection. Of the dead, they were denying the resurrection of the body. But the Christian Christians, especially, because in verse 12 we didn't read it. Uh, we stopped at verse 11, but verse 12 says, "Now, if Christ is, uh, is if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead?" So some people were kind of arguing. So how can, you know, there is no resurrection of the dead. They may say, well, man, Jesus, yeah, he may have risen from the dead, but we don't know for sure. But we know for sure that there is no resurrection of the dead. You know, the Greeks at that time did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. In Acts chapter 17, verse 32, says that when Paul preached the resurrection of Christ at Athens, some mocked him some jeered, they, said, they scoffed at him. Pfft, what, you're talking about someone coming back to life? Ridiculous. The Greek philosophers at that time thought that the body was the prison of the soul. And the sooner the soul was set free in death, the better off a person would be. Because this body that we have, you know our soul is so free and it, it can do it is it is noble soul our spirit is noble it is highly desirable but it is trapped in this thing called body we have this body that is ignorable it's just like dirty the body it's all these fleshly things you know we say some nasty things we harm each other we hurt each other right all that comes from our body but our spirit, the Greek philosophers said, our spirit is pure, it is good, but our body is evil. And so they did not believe in the resurrection. They couldn't even conceive of the idea of resurrection. Why would you want to come back to life? Why would you want to be resurrected when you are dead? That's when you get truly set free. We are imprisoned. The Greeks considered the human body as a source of weakness and wickedness. So they simply could not believe that the body should continue to exist after death. Once you are dead, you are set free. Your spirit and your soul will soar on high, and you will be great. You are set free. And against such intellectual current of the day... Paul felt compelled to deal with, it, with, with this issue of resurrection. And to Paul, this was a crucial issue. He saw this as a gospel issue, a profound theological issue that had to be addressed. It wasn't just some kind of intellectual, uh, you know, mental exercise or some kind of cultural issue, but it was a gospel issue. You know, there are some issues that, that we can agree to disagree, right? There are some room for different interpretations. Like, say, even as uh, we kind of talked about the nature of the gift of tongues and prophecy, there are a little different understandings. And I said, said before, I'm not even sure if Pastor Jay and I have, the, have 100% in agreement with what each... Uh, you know, the nature of the, uh, uh, of the gift. But that's, there, there can be some small you know, room for us to have a little bit of disagreement. We cannot agree on every single thing, on every issue. So there are some uh, issues where they, there can be room for disagreement. But then there are issues like this where you have to be absolutely clear and there is no room for different interpretation. Things like Trinity, <laughs> we, don't, we don't ever go into one way or another and say different things. Well, I have a different interpretation or I have a different understanding about Trinity. Absolutely not. Because the Bible is very clear that there's three in one, as we even just sang, that there are three distinct persons who are co equal, co eternal the Father, the Son, and the holy spirit. And yet three in one. We believe in one God. And yet in that one Godhead there are three distinct persons. So doctrine of trinity, things like who Christ is, that he is fully God and yet he's fully human being. He's not 50-50 who Christ is. Things like how we can be saved. It is not through our works or because we show up in church or memorize some scripture verses that we are saved. No, it's, it is not. So in things like this, there absolutely can be no disagreement or different uh, way to, uh, to understand or interpret. Resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers is one such issue where we can, there cannot be any different way to understand. Christianity rises and falls with the resurrection of Christ. Without Christ being raised from the dead, there is no gospel. There is no Christianity. If Christ simply died for our sins and remained dead in the grave, it means that all his claims are really false. He claimed to be God and he claimed to be the author of life. And if he could not overcome the power of death, but was subject to death, then he could not have been divine as he claimed to be. I mean, think about it. There, w- would there be a, really a salvation when, when we believe in a dead Savior? How can there be a salvation when the Savior it remains dead? what kind of salvation would that be? Without resurrection of Christ, there would be no prospect of eternal life because there is no hope of resurrection. Christianity would have amounted to nothing. It would have been just an offshoot of Judaism. Oh, yeah, yeah, like Jesus said all this and that, but really, indeed, it's based on the Old Testament. Uh, religion. So without Christ's resurrection, the gospel is incomplete at best. You know, when we usually present the gospel, when we talk about the gospel, what we th- th- talk about is who God is, right? Our sinfulness how Christ came and died for our sins, and then we have to repent, and we have to put our trust in him. And then we talk about the hope of eternal life, and then we invite people to receive him as Lord and Savior, right? So that's usually how our gospel presentation or how our understanding of the gospel is. What we don't mention is his resurrection in our gospel presentation, we usually treat it like it is something that is reserved for Easter Sunday. That's the one time, one and only time, once a year kind of event where we talk about the resurrection of Christ. Think about your gospel presentations in the past, if you have, if you have had any. When you presented the gospel to somebody, who is asking? Or some when you wanted to share your faith, when you wanted to share your go- you know, just, uh, present the gospel to someone. Was your was Christ's resurrection part of your gospel witness? It wasn't for me in the past. You know, I focused on our sinfulness, the death of Christ, the sacrifice that Christ has made on our behalf, and I would focus on the call to repentance and trust and they're all essential part and components of the gospel absolutely but you know i didn't really think that the resurrection of christ was really part of that well, was really necessary for the gospel but is that how what paul is that how paul viewed so we're going to look at his view and in this passage paul brings out two aspects About the uh, about the resurrection, and the first one is inclusion, and the second one is implication, about the resurrection and the gospel. And so the first point that I want to bring out to you is inclusion, in the gospel, inclusion in the gospel concerning, the resurrection. You know, unlike many uh, many of us now, the way we view the gospel. You know, once again, oftentimes we we think about the gospel. We think about God, our sinfulness. Jesus Christ dying and dying dying for our sins, and we have to trust and repent, right? So, But then along the way, we somehow don't really think much about the resurrection of Christ in our gospel presentation. Unlike us, Paul considered Christ's resurrection as an integral part of the gospel. If you read uh, it, starting from verse 1, right? It says, "Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached this, so, oh here, right now, he's saying, "This is the gospel that I preached to you, which you've received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved." So this gospel that he preached is something that they stand on, and that is this, uh, by which that they are being saved. And if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And it says, for I delivered to you as of, as of first importance. It's talking about how important, this is the primary importance in anyone's, uh, in, in Christian's life, is to understand. And how can you believe in something that you cannot, you don't fully understand, right? For I delivered to you as of first importance, What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. To this part, we all know. But in verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve. You see, here, clearly, the gospel that uh, Paul uh, presented the gospel that Paul preached at the heart of it. Of course, this is not you know, the only thing that he talked about when he came to the gospel, but at the, at the very heart of the gospel was the resurrection of Christ. He's reminding the Corinthian church of the gospel that he preached to them you know, we, uh, we always talk about the gospel, the gospel. But as I pose that question to you, what is it? What is the gospel? If someone were to ask you right now, if you believe the gospel, of course we would say, Yeah, I, I believe the gospel. And if that person were to follow up and ask you, So can you tell me what it is? What is the gospel? how would you explain it? Are you going to say, well, I, I believe it, but I, I just don't know how to say it. I, I don't know where to start. Right? I just don't know. I just don't know where to start. Does that sound convincing to you that you believe in something that you don't know what to even say or where to even begin? Can you believe in something and say, but I don't know how to explain it. I don't know where to begin. I don't know what to, I, I really don't know what to say. I, I know it, but I don't know how to explain it. I believe it with all my heart. But I, I don't really know how to explain it. I don't know where to start. If you cannot uh, articulate the gospel to someone who is asking, then it indicates that you do not know the gospel as you should. You really don't. Whatever that uh, whatever that you can articulate in a cohesive manner, is the extent of your understanding of the gospel. You can only clearly and um, cohesively uh, explain what you truly understand as you are trying to explain the gospel to someone who is asking you, and if you are fumbling, if you, are, if you find yourself scrambling for words or don't even know how to start, or even if you say something to blurt out some words, but if it's not cohesive to the listener, then I'm sorry to say you do not know the gospel as you should. You may think you do, but you really don't. You may have the bits and pieces of the information about the gospel, but you do not really have a firm grasp of the gospel. It is only to the extent that you can explain to someone else that is really the the level of your true understanding of the gospel. You know, anyone can nod their head when they hear. Listen to the the gospel. Say, oh yeah, 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 I I I know it. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I've heard it like a million times before. I know it. But you can only articulate what you really know. Anything outside of it, you may think you know it, but you really don't. It's just in there, but it's all jumbled up. You don't have a clear understanding of the gospel. So do you know the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? If you say you do, then I really suggest that you, uh, you, be make sh- you make sure to articulate what you believe about the gospel. Because if you say, once again, I know it in my head, but I don't know how to explain, I don't know where to start, then that's where you are of your understanding of the gospel. You don't really know it. So here, Paul, he doesn't mean to be uh, exhaustive in his gospel presentation or what he preached. But what we are certain is that he certainly included the resurrection of Christ. And here in verse 3, it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Here, Paul links himself with early Christian uh, tradition. He did not invent it. He didn't come up with this idea. But he has been, he had been the one who uh, transferred that, uh, that truth, gospel truth to the Corinthian church. What he had received, his source was other Christians. The verbs that he uses what I uh, I delivered, what I received. right Those two verses, deliver and receive, are technical terms for receiving and transmitting tradition. What he has received, the tradition that he has received, now he's transferring it to someone else. In this case, the Corinthian church, the believers. So what he's writing here was not only Paul's preaching, but of the early church's teaching as a whole. It wasn't just Paul, his own idea. He just kind of put his own spin to the gospel and then just preached to the Corinthian church. But it's the the, the message of the whole church, early church. The whole church believed and this is the gospel that they preached. And what is it? What follows is the heart of the gospel. It's uh, you know Paul is not here giving us this is the definition. This is the only things that should be in the in the gospel. But this is really at the heart, at the core of the gospel, and it is Christ's vicarious death. Right? He that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he vicariously died in our stead. The sins that we have committed and for which we should die, Christ took our place and he died for the sins that we have committed against God himself. According to the scriptures, that he was buried the confirmation that he had indeed he, really, he, he, he had really died and the resurrection as a fulfillment of the Old Testament message, that he was raised from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures. Now Isaiah uh, chapter 53, verses 5 and 6 says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Once again, according to the scriptures, and when they talk about the scriptures at the time, it was referring to the Old Testament scriptures. According to this Isaiah, the Christ died for our sins. And the passage that I read, if you guys were here at the very beginning for the call to worship in Psalm 16. According to the scriptures, because in verse, uh, Psalm 16, verse 10, it says, For you will not abandon my soul to show or let your Holy One see corruption. The Holy One here is referring to Christ. That He will not leave Him dead in a grave that he rose again. He, ra- he was raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. The, cr- the resurrection of Christ was at the heart of the gospel. right? And there are two lines of evidence for the death and resurrection of Christ are given here. The testimony of the Old Testament as we looked at, and the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Right? In, verse, in, in verse 6, says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Right? The appearance to this large group would have helped bolster the faith of those who may have had some doubts, right? because it really takes away the possibility of some few individuals' hallucinations. It's like, oh, you know, I, well, I've seen the Lord, I've seen Christ. But if it was a scattered few individuals, you know, people may say, maybe, yeah, maybe you are doping or something, right? You are just not seeing something. You going, your mind is going crazy. But here, that the risen Christ appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, at once, right? It wasn't just a few people trying to come up with this crazy idea. Why was the resurrection of Christ central to the gospel? It is because he authenticated the claims of Christ and fulfilled the prophecies, the promises of the scriptures. It is one thing to make claims, because anyone can make claims. Anyone can make claims. But it is an entirely different thing to follow through with them, especially resurrection because it is humanly impossible. Jesus predicted that he would rise again from the dead on the third day. I mean, you know, in in the case of Lazarus, right, the brother of Mary and Martha, he brought Lazarus back to life after he had been dead for a few days as a foretaste. And that in and of itself was incredible. But, you know, it was actually Jesus who performed this miracle on someone else while he was alive. But now, Jesus himself was dead. He'd been died. But he had risen on the third day. His own resurrection validated everything that he has said. The gospel devoid of Christ's resurrection is at best a deficient gospel. Because the resurrection of Christ made everything come together. It really, truly validated. It authenticated everything. Everything, every claim that he has made that he is the son of God. He's a Lord of life. It authenticated everything. everything. It is that one thing that put everything together. You know, I have uh, this uh, password manager thing because, you know, like these days we have so many like, passwords, right? And like, I mean, and you have so many different accounts and you know, I used to just put one password for everything and that is definitely a no-no, right? And so now like, I'm, you, you cannot keep up with all those things. And so I use this one password managing manager like software. Um, and so only thing I have to do now is as long as I memorize that one master uh, password for that one particular uh, you know, password manager uh, software, that's the only thing. I then it uh, it stores and encrypts everything else, right? So like as long as to do that, then once that software gets activated, then like any you know website that I go to, it will automatically populate, right? The password and all those things. Oh, it is so convenient. I just have to make sure that it is really like bulletproof, right? Really, and that no one else can really know And then, so I, I memorize that one thing, and now I don't have to memorize anything else. One master password. The resurrection of Christ is just like that. It is that one thing that brings everything together. All that Christ has talked about. All that the scripture has talked about. At the very core of the gospel is Christ's resurrection. It is the Christ's resurrection. It's not some kind of secondary thing in our gospel understanding. It absolutely has to be at the center. Maybe in our presentation of the gospel, The resurrection of Christ must be mentioned. And the second point is the implication of the gospel. second point is the implication of the gospel. As a zealous Pharisee, I mean, he was, I mean, you know, Paul was a gung-ho, right, Pharisee. And he has been an enemy of the church. And here Paul reminds the Corinthian believers of the magnificent grace of God in drawing sinners out of sin and into his kingdom. He calls himself the least of the apostles, as if he were untimely born. And he's not really putting himself down, though. In verse 9, this is what he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God but he's not really putting himself down here. He fully realizes the depth of his error and the sin that he has been saved from. So much so that he knew that he was not worthy to be called an apostle. How could I be when I was the one who was actively persecuting? He didn't just sit around, but he went around making sure that all these so-called Christians would be imprisoned tortured or died, whatever, persecuted the church. So he knew when he was called that he didn't deserve. He deserved to be called an apostle. Only God's grace had handed him such a privilege, privilege and responsibility. So far, so good, right? I mean, isn't it wonderful to be reminded of the gospel and the resurrection of Christ? But is this where it should end? For us to simply nod our head in agreement. Yeah, it is, it is wonderful that Christ resurrected, and it is by the grace of God that we are saved, and now you know we 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 are gonna be with him forever and ever. Praise God, is this where it should end? Many Christians stop it right there and simply walk away without letting this truth truly transform their lives. They just say, oh, praise God, yeah. Oh, grace, God is good all the time. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to heaven now. They put the gospel truth on the back burner and say, okay, I'm saved, good. Now I'm going to just go on with my life. The gospel is really for the non-Christians. Now that I believe it, I'm just going to put that away, put it aside. Now I have to just take care of all these other things that I need to take care of. Scriptures tell us it's not enough for us to know the gospel intellectually. We are called to embrace it with all our hearts and seriously consider the the implications of the gospel. When Paul encountered Christ, and experienced God's grace. It did not leave him unchanged, or it did not let him to basically sit on his hands. I'm good, Lord. I'm good. Okay? You save me. Great. I'm so thankful. Good. I'm going to just move on with my life. No, it completely changed his life. The intervention of God's grace has made Paul an apostle, and he claims to have worked Harder than any other apostles. In verse 10, he says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now I am an apostle. God called me to be an apostle. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I worked harder than any one of the other apostles. Paul, Peter, Peter. James, what have what have you? All these apostles, I worked harder than all of them. He didn't just say, "Oh, praise God, oh, you saved me. Oh, what grace, and I'm so thankful." Okay, now I'm gonna just go back to doing my own thing. No, he said, I worked harder. Of course, it's not trying to just like say, you know, I'm you know, in a boastful way. Was like, yeah, I'm going to compare myself to other people and making sure that, you know, they, are, they, they do this much. I'm going to make sure that I'm going to one up on them and just do it this, this much. That's not what he's saying. But he truly, as he understood the grace of God, the gospel that truly set him free, it compelled him. It motivated him. It persuaded him. It convicted him. To work hard, work harder. For many Christians these days, when they hear about grace of God and how we have to trust Him, and say, "Oh, good," and then we turn around and say, "Now I can live my life the way I want. I'm going to heaven no matter what, right? I can just do whatever I want." That is not the reaction. That is not the fruit that Paul had. He rather worked harder than anyone, anyone, one of them. Divine grace compelled him to labor all the more. And I believe that is the appropriate reaction of anyone who has truly experienced and understood God's grace. If you truly understood, if you truly embraced the gospel, It will not lead you to say, or it will not lead you to licentious living. I'm just gonna live up. I'm saved, right? Or, you know, Jesus loves me no matter what, right? So I'm just gonna kind of do my own thing, be merry, just be happy, just pursue my own dreams. No, it would really change your life, transform your life, and say, you know what? I'm gonna work. I'm going to serve with all my heart. The grace that I have received, the gospel that I have heard, that I have experienced, how could I sit on my, you know, hands? How could I be idle? How could I be lazy? How could I be half-hearted? I'm going to go all in because the gospel and the love of Christ, the grace of God compels me It persuades me. It convicts my heart to live for him. If your response to the gospel of God's grace leads to a lax attitude, it means that you have not fully grasped the gospel because it will not leave you the way you are. The gospel truth will make us love him and serve him with all our hearts. So that's why when I I get concerned when some people say, yeah, I I believe the gospel, I understand the gospel, but their life does not reflect. They're always half-hearted. They're always in the, you know, kind of just taking a backseat and say, I'm good, I'm good. You know, just don't ask me to do things or I'm just going to be okay. You know, I'd be happy with just kind of simply showing up on Sunday, once in a while when I have time or when I feel like it. Oh, yeah, but I believe the gospel. It concerns me as a pastor. Because sometimes I wonder, do they really understand the depth, the height, of the magnitude of the gospel truth? How it truly invades every aspect of their heart and their lives. Do they truly understand it? If they do, how could they sit still? How could they be so casual about living a Christian life. The people who truly understand God's grace will have the same confession as Paul in this verse 10. What's so amazing, also, another uh, incredible observation that Paul makes is, yeah, I worked harder than any one of them. I really gave my all. And then he says, though it is not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You know, even though I just gave my all, right? It's not really I that's doing it. It is the grace of God that is with me, that is compelling me to live for him. I'm not trying to just muster up some kind of willpower within me. To live for God. Oh my gosh, I don't want to do this, but you know somehow I feel guilty. You know, like maybe God is twisting my arms or something. So you know I feel like obligated. I'm just hooked. So I have to do this. I don't want to do it. But I have to work. That is not what Paul is saying. It is a privilege. It is my joy. It is my delight to love Him and to serve Him. And this, the fact that I am even motivated, the fact that I am committed to serve God and love him and walk with him, it is also the grace of God because God's grace was on me to even come to the realization and giving me even the desire to love him and live uh, live for him. And he understood that the grace of God Is the one that was empowering him to work harder. He didn't say, you know, it's me. I'm I'm doing all this, right? I'm shouldering all the the burdens of the world. And as an apostle, I'm doing all this for you. Me, 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 myself, and I. No, he says, even though I worked harder than anybody else, gone through so many difficulties and suffering, persecution, and everything. It wasn't me. It was a grace of God that was with me, that enabled me to even live a life of labor, a life of sacrifice. And to him, I am absolutely concerned. Uh, you know, sure he would not even have really considered it a sacrifice. When he thought about the magnitude of the sacrifice of Christ, how could he even dare to think about the sacrifice that he makes. Right? That is really not a sacrifice. To us, what Paul has done, is incredible sacrifice. But in light of, in the magnitude, in light of the sacrifice of Christ, the, Christ, uh, the sacrifice he made, I'm sure they say, I cannot even begin to say it is sacrifice. But would that be our Mindset. What sacrifice do you think you're giving to the Lord? If you think about it, what sacrifice? Yeah, uh, sleep depravity maybe, and some like really hard work. Yes, absolutely. Can we get to the point of saying, even that, God was gracious to me. It's the grace of God that made me who I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Where I am now, where I stand before God, it is only by the grace of God. I didn't do any of this. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. But God was gracious to me to be where I am. Think about where you are. You are what you are. You are who you are. Only by the grace of God. May that really compel us work hard serve him with all our hearts and at the end of our lives say it was not I but the grace of God that was with me that enabled me that empowered me to live for him may God be praised through and through it's not I, none of me but all of Christ May that be our life's testimony. Let's pray. Father, we turn to you at this time. Lord, we confess that we have such a small view of who you are. Our understanding of the gospel is shallow, fragmented, incomplete, deficient, but Lord, you have revealed your will, your purpose through your Son. And it's plainly displayed on the Scriptures. And yet, often, we take it for granted. We take, uh, we take a swipe at it. take a casual approach to the gospel and to our Christian life. But Paul reminds us that we are not to really take it so half-heartedly or casually. It absolutely convinced him. It changed, transformed his life upside and down. And he worked harder than anybody else. He gave his all. And yet, he also understood that it was not him, but it was the grace of God that was with him, that enabled him to even work harder than anyone else. Help us, Lord, to come to the realization and understanding that it's not us, and it's not about us. It is all about you. It is all you, Lord. Teach us. Awaken our souls and spirits to live according to your word. And Father, we also pray for those of us who are really going through tough times. There are those of us who are still grieving the loss of their beloved family members. There are some of us whose family members are seriously ill, praying for them daily, caring for them. And there are those of us who are heartbroken. that there are those of us who are fearful. There are those of us who are sick, but in the midst of all this, Lord, may you come in the person of your Holy Spirit, minister to us. Meet us where we are. Reveal reveal yourself to us clearly to understand that your grace is still sufficient for us. That we would somehow come to marvel at your amazing, magnificent grace. And that we are what we are, by your grace, that we would uh, cherish it with all our hearts. Thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.